wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Welcome to Bleeding Daylight. Just a quick reminder that you can find Bleeding Daylight wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Today's guest was convicted of 89 counts of money laundering, mail fraud, wire fraud, tax fraud and sentenced to 17 and a half years in federal prison. His remarkable story of life transformation and a wife who stood by him throughout everything is inspiring. Mike Savage was jailed for his beliefs. His beliefs were that he could get away with his crimes without getting caught. He's a former radio personality, television news anchor, and has been described as a criminal mastermind. These days, he's an adjunct professor teaching Bible, theology, and psychology, and co-hosts a Savage Perspective podcast with his wife, Cynthia. Mike authored the book, A Prisoner's Perspective, Redemption of a Criminal Mastermind. Today, we get to explore his colourful life on Bleeding Daylight. Mike, thank you so much for your time. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I know that the question on everyone's mind is, what did he do to get sent to prison? Tell me about the days before you were caught. The best way to put it, and I I try not to go into too much detail for two reasons. One, I don't want to glorify my sin. And second, I don't want to give anybody any ideas of what to do to make extra money. I was a, a radio talk show host. I was making very little money doing that in the 1980s when I was approached uh, to do some work overseas, which had to do with transferring large sums of money. It could, it would be cash sometimes, other times it would be wire transfers, that sort of thing. Well, I made a little money to begin with, and then suddenly discovered, you know, there's a lot more that could be made. So I got involved with doing that, and so it was international money laundering, and then. In the United States, there's two. there were two forms of money laundering. One was just general money laundering, and the other was international money laundering. Uh, I was convicted of both 89 counts of money laundering, mail fraud, wire fraud, tax fraud. And so the sentence was 17 and a half years in, in federal prison. And I'm wondering now uh, about those people who knew you at the time. I imagine they didn't even know that this was going on. So this would have been a a real surprise, especially for those people who were used to listening to Mike on the radio. He's a good guy. And suddenly you're sent off to prison. Right. Well, no one knew what I was doing. My family didn't know. Uh, The people that I was working with at the time did not know. I I had two lives. I had one, the the family man, the the working guy. uh, I was working in Napa, California at the time on a radio station there. And no one had any idea, none whatsoever. I mean, I kept it uh, totally away from them. The other side was the criminal side, which was uh, an entirely, is a Jekyll Hyde type of personality. The nice guy, the funny guy who was on the radio, the controversial guy on the radio suddenly became uh, an entirely different person when it came to uh, running a crime business. Uh, and, and necessarily so. I mean, <laughs> you can't be a nice guy when you're a criminal and being around other criminals. And so there was a two different distinct Mike Savages uh, at that time, uh, both liars, um, both um, cheating, doing things that he sh- shouldn't have been doing. Uh, I, I, and I want to make this clear. I accept responsibility for, for my crime. I went to trial, was proven guilty. I, I was guilty. I am guilty. I take responsibility. I don't want to downplay any of that. Like I was a nice guy that got caught up in stuff. That wasn't the case at all. 
I was not. I really, the people try to pay, oh, you must have been a pretty nice guy. So, no, I was a liar. I was a liar. And I was really, really good at it. And until the Lord broke me down, uh, I probably would have stayed on that path and ended up dead. Uh, but the amazing thing through all of this was that my wife, Cynthia, who had no idea what was going on until the federal government, Organized Crime Task Force, FBI, uh, IRS, U.S. Postal Service, everybody came busting into our house. And she was six months pregnant at the time. And they took her away from it to reduce the stress. They told me that until you talk with us, uh, we're not bringing her back. Well, they actually took her to breakfast. You know, they're being hard, guys. And so my choice at that point was to, I could have confessed and gotten much less time. But instead, I became the tough guy. And so this thing drew out and dragged out for, for over two years before we actually went to trial. So that day, this is the time that your wife finds out of, of what's been going on. You say that you weren't prepared to admit it to the authorities who came busting down your door. What did you say to your wife? I told her it was a mistake. They had the wrong person. I lied. I was a liar. I was unsaved. Um, I, was, I was trying to cover my tracks, trying to figure a way out of this. Um, and so I lied. And because she loves me so much and she stayed with me through the entire incarceration, she's with me today in the other room right now. <laughs> We're still together. And I got out in 2007. She loved me so much. She went along with, with what I was saying. She, she would believe me. And that was it. It wasn't until much later that I would confess anything to her. And that's after I'd been in prison for over two years. So at that stage, she believes that an innocent man has been sent to prison and she has no idea at this point that you were absolutely guilty. Yeah, that's right. And she was raising our children at the same time and sacrificing to, to come see me, visit me in prison every other weekend, a uh, six-hour drive each way, six-and-a-half-hour drive from uh, where she was living in the, in the Napa area to Lompoc, California. So, yeah, I, it was... I was a rotten guy, truly a rotten guy. And what did that do to the trust in your relationship when finally you admitted that over those two years of, of getting to trial and then a couple of years into the sentence, all these years of continuing that lie, and you suddenly say, well, actually, I, I did it. What happened to the trust between the two of you? It grew. It grew because she has always been trustworthy to me and our relationship always been trustworthy. Even though when I was trying to come up with reasons we should divorce while I was in prison, all this type of thing, she wouldn't have any of that at all. Uh, this is the, the, the book honestly started out as an homage to her and quickly morphed into, Oh my gosh, this is all about God. Only God could do this. Only God could bring a woman into my life before I got caught stay with me after I got caught through all the lies, through all the stuff, stay faithful to me. And when I finally told her, she forgave me. She forgave me. Rodney, of, of, all, of all the things I expected, forgiveness was not one of them. But that was what came absolutely, totally, completely. And our relationship grew from, from then on even further <laughs> if it could. I mean, it just, it, it, it mushroomed after that. The idea of being able to just confess and say, yeah, you know, look, I was, I was bad. I got caught up in stuff. I had no business getting caught up in. Um, I mean, the, the title of the book, the, the whole thing of the criminal mastermind is, is irony. In the 1980s in, in, in the United States, 
Uh, they had this war on drugs and so forth. And I was convicted under on drug statutes, even though drugs weren't part of the crime. And every person that had more than one person working for them was considered a criminal mastermind in the indictments. It was a, it was like a template that was filled out. If, if there was a kid on the street uh, slinging drugs to, to, and he had two or three people that worked for him, he was a criminal mastermind. It was the, it's, it's the irony that everybody's a criminal mastermind at, at that particular time. I wasn't a criminal mastermind. I mean, I'd never been in trouble in my life. I just got greedy and I fell for it. And it was exactly the wrong thing to do, but it was a decision that I made willingly. I wasn't tricked or duped into it. And then once I found out I was pretty good at it, then I expanded the enterprise and, and, and went from there. So that was, you know, it's just the, the way it is. I mean, it, I mean, I saw somebody say something about, you know, Mike never takes acceptance of responsibility. I did. <laughs> we read the book. I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking I'm losing everything, including my wife. And uh, instead, God gave me the greatest gift, you know, eternal life and, and returned me to my wife. And we've, we've just continued to grow since then. And I imagine that label of criminal mastermind is really a, a masterstroke by the police, because as soon as you're labeled that, you're going into court and assume to be guilty. If you're being called a criminal mastermind, and, and still they have to prove the guilt, and, and obviously, as you've said, that was there, but that's a great way to put the jury on your side right from the start. Right. This, this type of crime will never have to, we have to stand up to it and stop it. It'll never happen again. I mean, come on. I was before Bernie Madoff or any of these other people who were doing anything, and and it didn't stop or slow down anything. People are going to sin because they're sinners. There's going to be crime because there's criminals. You're not going to make an example. I mean, here in the U.S., and I'm not sure about Australia, if you have the capital punishment or that sort of thing, but in, in the United States, certain states do, and there's even a federal law that that allows under certain circumstances, but people are still killing people even though there's there's the capital punishment. So it, it speaks to the inherent evilness of man's heart, mine in particular. I mean, it was a dark, dark place, Rodney. It wasn't a, uh, again, I don't want to come across as, oh, I was a nice guy. I really was not a nice guy. And there's a lot of things I wouldn't tell you about because I don't think the audience would be ready to hear that. When God reached down, he had to come down a long way to grab hold of Mike Savage. You said that you had to eventually admit your guilt to your wife. Was there a part of you that found it difficult to even admit that to yourself? Were you kidding yourself to some degree and thinking, well, this is all justified. I, I need to make a living and this is my way to do it. Yeah. Or did you just know straight out, I, I'm absolutely guilty? No, I lied to myself. I felt like I was caught up in something that I couldn't get out of. I'll be honest with you. I prayed even when I was an unbeliever. I, I remember praying the last couple of years before I got caught. God, please get me out of this. Uh, this is this is. Let me just get out of this. This is this is killing me. This double life. This I got to get out of this. And and he answered the prayer because I got I got arrested and put in prison. And I was out of it. You know, and I'm not making a joke there. I'm serious. I mean that was that was an answered prayer. I see it now as an answered prayer. But at the time, uh, my whole thought process was justification. I'm justifying this. This is what I do. If it was against the law, I would have been caught or I would know that it was against the law. All, I was, all the justification in the world, I, I would pour into my, but knowing deep down inside, you know, that's a lie, Mike, but going against that. Just, no, no, no. I got to keep going. I got to keep going. Got to keep going. And I had people dependent on me, not just my family, but the the other crime people that I was, involved. they were dependent on me. I do it all. So trying to stop wasn't really an option. I needed someone to help, and God did help. I mean, 
there was a, that's a thorough cut. When you go to prison, that's it. There's no coming back on, on this type of thing for me. I don't know what have been happened, would have happened if I hadn't been saved in prison. Uh, I don't know what would have happened when I got out or if I would have gotten out, you know, because it, it was just, it was a dark, dark time where there's just no hope whatsoever of, of changing. But initially it was all justification. This is what I do. This is who I am. It's going to be fine. I can handle this. All, all the lies you tell uh, when you're trying to justify sin. And as for the money that you were making through your <laughs> your job as a criminal mastermind, all, all this money, uh, how much did you make and, and how did you hide that away from the people that knew you? In the 80s, it really wasn't that much of a, a problem. Remember, there's no cell phones. There was no internet. Um, the most advanced technology was faxing things from, from one place to another. So moving money around was extremely easy. Transferring from a, one bank to a bank overseas or bank overseas to, to places in the United States, it wasn't a difficulty at all. I mean, the, there weren't these limits on how much you can transfer now without reporting it to the Internal Revenue Service here in the U.S. So th- those laws and those things weren't in effect at that time. The amount that I was convicted of was $2 million, uh, which back then was was quite a bit. I mean, still quite a bit now. What am I saying? But I mean, back then it was even, it was even, many even more. But there was considerably more than that that was moved around and that I got commissions on on being able to do stuff. And the government traced virtually every penny of it and any property that we had, that I had at the time, was seized and forfeited to the federal government. Uh, the banks overseas, they talk about they have all these secrecy, you know. They rolled over instantly when the federal government asked them for the information. So they were able to track it, but it was they, they, they got all the money that, that was left at the time of things that I hadn't bought or, or given to others or that sort of thing. It was, it was millions of dollars, and it was, it was very easy to do back. You mentioned that you had an encounter with God whilst you were in prison, that he did answer the prayer that you prayed even before knowing if he was real or not. Um, and, and so often I find that that's the way, that we, we pray for an answer and we get the answer we didn't expect, but that, that, <laughs> that's, that's that, that is the answer that God brings. Right. How far into your jail term did that actually happen? It was it was about two and a half years in. Uh, so the the first I was first sent to the penitentiary in Lompoc, California. Even though I was classified as white collar criminal, all this kind of stuff, they said, "Well, he's organized crime." Or, and they never proved any of that. But I mean, they sent me to accidentally sent me to the penitentiary. That they, they had misclassified my my level of security. I was supposed to be sent to a correctional institution, which is a low. But I was sent to a, a very high level prison, and so I was there for a short time till that got uh, changed, and then I was transferred to the Federal Correctional Institution in Lompoc, which is right across the street from the penitentiary, and I was assigned to the kitchen duty, where I quickly ingratiated myself with some people there, and began making uh, alcohol for sale to the uh, the other prisoners. It's called Pruno, and it was made with bread and yeast and sugar, and I won't give the recipe out because I'm going to be trying it and going blind, but we, uh, we, I would make that. And so I, I had a little side hustle going on doing that. I was also uh, one of the, the guys making book, uh, you know, for taking bets on football games and baseball games, basketball games, all that kind of stuff. So I fell right back into a criminal lifestyle as soon as I got into prison. Um, so it, 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 that was, I was, it was great. You know, it was, oh yeah, I got this. Now I can do this for the next, you know, few years. But then about 18 months in, I get transferred out of the kitchen where I was doing all this stuff 
to the chapel's office, the chaplain's office, and I become the lead chapel clerk. And I, I didn't ask for the transfer, obviously. And, and I went in and asked the chaplain, I said, why are you transferring me in here? He said, I saw you on the, on the compound. He says, you know, Holy Spirit spoke to me about you. And, and so I'm, I'm, I wanted you to come work for me. And I said, I, look, I don't know about God. I don't know about other stuff. You know, I've got a lot of time to do. I'm not trying to sit around with a bunch of Bible thumpers or, you know, Quran thumpers. Because there's like 13 different religious groups there, you know, from Muslims, Jews, uh, Mormons, Jehovah Witness, Wiccans, all these it, Catholics, everything that you can think of, right? That's not going to be around much people. Come on. He says, no, just give it a try. So I'm there and I, I, you know, he gave me the responsibility for uh, being in services. And then after the services are over with making sure everything was straightened out, everything was sorted, everything was cleaned out, um, ready for the next group, ready for whatever was going to be coming in. And so over a period of six months, I'm going to all these different services, right? And not just Protestant services. I'm going to all of them and thinking this is the worst job in the world. Everybody thinks they're right. Everybody's got a way to God. Hey, you got to do this. You got to do that. Come on, come on. So the thing that I hated most was going to Protestant services because there was always um, this altar call at the end where, you know, if you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, come forward and say this prayer and you'll be saved. And I'm like, yeah, okay, right. I'm sitting in the back. And it, was, it had been a particularly rugged week for me. I'd, I'd argued with Cynthia. I wanted to divorce her over the phone and then said, I want to divorce. No, you're not going to divorce. I mean, she was, she's just adamant. There's not going to be a divorce. So I'm miserable. I've got, you know, a, a million years left on my sentence. I mean, this is 1990s. I don't get out until 2007. And I'm thinking, you know, that's Buck Rogers time back then, 2000. Oh, that's far, far away. And I'm miserable, I'm depressed, I'm angry because I can't make the pruno anymore. I'm upset about not being able to be involved in the gambling. Can't do any of this stuff at all. And I sat through so many of these Protestant services. I, I probably could have given the sinner's prayer even being an unbeliever. You know what I'm saying? It's just, and so this particular night, I'm angry, I'm depressed and frustrated. And I'm sitting in the back waiting for these guys. Just the volunteers had come in and you know, volunteers before had come in and seen me and let me pray for you. They put their hands on, oh, God tells me you're not going to do any more of your sentence. You're going to go home soon. And, you know, truly, Rodney, I did every single day of my sentence. So none of their prophesying work. But I didn't know that at the time. I was just irritated, just just a miserable person. And so I'm sitting in the back and, and I, I, like I said, rotten week. And I said, you know what, God, I'll tell you what, if you're real, if you really are real and, and, all this stuff I've been hearing for these months is true. Show me something. Just show me something. And the guy's going into the sinner's prayer at the, at the same time. And I'm just saying to God, show me something. Because I don't, this is, and, and if, last chance, show me something. And Rodney, I started crying. And I don't cry. I'm not a crier. Never been a crier. But I start crying. And not, not, you know, like crying, but like, weeping and all i can describe and i don't expect everybody to go through this and i don't expect a lot of people necessarily going to believe me when i say this but suddenly it's like a synapse in my brain that had been dormant fired and all those sermons i sat through and all those teaching seminars that i sat through and all the stuff that i was so miserable having to do i suddenly understood 
I got it. I understood. And I, and I believed it made sense to me for some reason while I'm weeping like a baby, this I'm a big guy. I'm six, three at the time. I was like two eighty. Now I'm two twenty. Thank you, Jesus. But this big old guy weeping in the back and actually believing for the first time, not only in God, but that God loved me. And I, I, I just, that's how I, that's how I got saved. As I say, I don't everybody goes through that. I'm just, this is just what happened to me. It's just what happened to me. And it was that synapse firing. All that stuff filtered through. I could understand what was being said. I wanted a closer relationship with, with this person who, when I asked him to prove something to, to me, made me cry. <laughs> you know, I, I just kept my head down, waited for everybody to leave. No, usually the volunteers come at least say something. Nobody said anything. Everybody left. And so I finished up cleaning up the thing, left, went back to the, to the, to the cell and just laid there quietly trying to figure this stuff out. A couple of days later, I had to go back to work. I go in and see the chaplain. I say, hey, look, let me tell you what happened. And so I told him, he said, I've been waiting for that. <laughs> like, like this is, I, I've, been, I've been waiting for this, Mike. This is, this is great news, don't you? And I said, well, that's, that's great news for you, but I have no idea what to do. I said, I, I, am I supposed to go to every Bible study? Am I supposed to go to every service? What am I supposed to do? And he said, just be patient. He said, let's, let's, let's pray together. And we did. And let's see what God would have you do. Well, about a week later, I was enrolled in seminary um, because I wanted to know every, if, like in first chapter of John, when it says that, that, that Jesus is God, I remembered from the Jehovah Witnesses when they read it, it said that Jesus was a God. So the first thing I wanted to do was see in the Greek what it actually said. And he says, well, you're going to need to go to seminary. I said, yeah, but give me the Strong's Concordance and let's go through this. And so when I saw, I said, okay, then I was, then I just, all I wanted to do was learn. And I was 30 something years old. And all I wanted to do was learn about God. And so over the next, you know, what was it? 13 years. That's all I did was I learned I went to seminary. I got my degrees. I'm you know, trying to figure out, okay, when I get out, what am I called to do? And you know, the chaplain was was gone by then. Other chaplains were telling me, oh, God will show you, God will show you. But you're called to be a pastor, Mike. And I was saying, oh, that's cool. You know, that's great. I, I only have to work on what Wednesday to do a Bible study and then Sunday I preach. And I'm the rest of the week's <laughs> mine pretty much, right? So I had obviously I had no clue as to what a pastor did. But I became a teacher and I began teaching the other inmates the stuff that I was learning. And, you know, I would preach, uh, got to the point when I was transferred, finally, when my custody dropped far enough down, I, I was transferred to a camp in Taft, California, and we put together a choir and we would go out and sing in the local churches and I would preach. And it was, uh, I thought, okay, well, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm an okay preacher. I don't, you know, I'm, <laughs> but I'm really a teacher and a counselor because I was counseling guys and doing things like that. And so it was, a, it was a metamorphosis, you know, over the, over the, the period of time from, from this cocoon of prison to where coming out, you know, what am I going to be? Am I going to be in, you know, an ugly duck? Am I going to be a butterfly? You know, what's this? And no, you're just going to be the person I want you to be, Mike. And so that's kind of in a nutshell from, you just asked me about salvation, but I kind of felt like you need to see the whole story of how it played out. It wasn't a, uh, oh, I've got this now. My life has changed. This is a road to Damascus thing. There was no road to Damascus. 
God had me do every single day of my time. And my wife waited for me every single day of, of that time and suffered greatly by doing so, but she stayed nonetheless. And I mean, that's, I can of tell you, I mean, it, it's amazing that our youngest child became a police officer a year and a half ago. How's that? <laughs> People say God doesn't have a sense of humor. <laughs> How's that for a sense of humor? But I mean, it's, it's just been kind of a, uh, that type of a metamorphosis is taking place. So you were able to undertake those seminary courses whilst you were in prison. I, I guess that's one way of, of making sure that you have the time to study. Yeah, you know, I'm, I don't know how many people you know who have read all of Calvin's Institutes, who've read um, most of the Pentecostal literature on preaching, worship, teaching, that sort of thing. I read through uh, most of the word biblical commentaries. I went through all those. When I wasn't in the chapel, I was either at the, at the weight pile or I was in my cell reading books. And if I could get away with reading books while I was on duty at the chapel, I did that too. I mean, I, I read every commentary I could get my hands on. I read different versions of the Bible. I, I learned the, the, the Greek and, the, and the, the Hebrew writings. Now, I can't pronounce it. People laugh at me when I try and read it out loud because I didn't have anybody teaching me how to say the words. But that, and I, I did some time with a priest, and he was walking me through the Latin rites and Latin masses and, and, and going through those things. And so I had this, this opportunity to get a world-class education. Doing that, I was just amazed. You know, when I look back now, I'm amazed. Um, but it was it was, a, it was a rare opportunity, and I'm I'm really glad I took that time to be able to to read rather than, you know, doing the stuff that I was starting out doing. It certainly has been a big change around, and you mentioned that initial chaplain who saw you out there and just felt the Holy Spirit saying, "There's something about this guy. You you need some sort of connection." Do you ever get a chance to to catch up with him once you left prison? Thank goodness for Facebook, right? He found me. <laughs> he knew when I was getting out and we weren't allowed to communicate while I was in prison, but he had retired. And when I got out, he contacted me. So we have been in contact. Um, this is a, just a wonderful, wonderful man of God. And there was, there was another chaplain that I met at Taft that I'm still in contact with. Also, he's retired as well. Just wonderful men of God that, that were instrumental in keeping me on the right path. When I got to Taft, uh, the, uh, there, there were some... <laughs> extreme rough edges because I'd been at higher level institutions and going into a camp, it was entirely different. Uh, at higher level institutions, swearing is de rigueur. You know, it's, it's part of the, the process. <laughs> so he, he had to work on my swearing. Uh, I had a tendency to, I felt like there were certain times where only a certain word would do, you know? And I know that sounds <laughs> strange for Christians, but I was saved in prison. I was educated in prison. So the, the rough, and he, he worked as hard as he could to get those rough edges off of me. And, and, uh, I, I have to give him a lot of credit for, for having a lot of patience because there was times I would just, I was amazed at some of the stuff that people would say that were at a lower level institution. I mean, that's as low as you, there was no fence around it, nothing. You could walk off if you wanted to. But I mean, the people who would come in were just straight from the streets where I'd been in prison for over a decade. So it, it, there was some, some fisticuffs and other things that occurred. <laughs> we'll just kind of leave it at that. But he, uh, <laughs> I, I'm telling you, Rodney, it was, the, the the Mike Savage of today is entirely different than the one that, that made it into that prison camp at the end for the final two years of his sentence. You know, it was kind of like an old man. So that it's it's a, it was a process, and God always put the right people there to, to take care of that. 
There is a thought for some people that once you come to to meet with God, you accept Jesus, there's that salvation that we talk about in Christian circles, that life gets pretty sweet after that. But you're saying that's that's not quite the case. You still had to serve out that sentence. Right. And that goes against the way that some people would like to believe. I oh, know I had guys tell me you just need to claim your way out of here. You just need to claim your way out, Mike, because God loves I said, show me one person that's claimed their way out of prison. Just one. I said, let's take a look at the scriptures. You know, where did Paul end up? Where did Peter end up? In prison. I said, if there was anybody that could have walked out, it's those two. But they chose to stay. Why? Because of their faith in God. I have faith in God that he's going to make. Now, there weren't times that I wasn't still talking to Father and saying, hey, look, you know, <laughs> this is, this, I, I'm good to go. I'm ready to go. But the, the the thing is that the books that I read, one of them was um, The Practice of His Presence by Brother Lawrence. Are you familiar with that book? I've certainly heard of it, yes. Oh, that ch- that's the only way I pray anymore is, is this constant conversation. I mean, whether I'm, um, you know, scooping dog poop in the backyard or whether I'm cooking dinner or whether I've got the Bible open in front of me, he and I are in a conversation. When I teach prayer, when I teach the theology of prayer, one of the first things I tell the students is um, from here on out, for this, for this semester, uh, when you finish praying to God, do not say amen unless it's you're praying over food because we don't want the food to get cold. But other than that, you're forbidden from saying amen because that's like hanging up the phone. You're done. Maybe he's not. And so I want you to be in conversation. And the first time I said that, I got reported to the academic dean who calls me to his office. I'm teaching heresy. I explained to him what I said. And he goes, I've never thought of that. That's a good point. And so the, the, the first lesson is for them, I want you to sit there for one minute, close your eyes and think about nothing but God, just, just God for one minute. Everything else is gone. Close your eyes. I'm timing you. And of course, I'm a big guy. So these students are intimidated. They'll be in prison. So they're doing their best, right? At the end of one minute, I say, okay, who was able to keep their mind on God for one minute without any intrusive thoughts? And whoever raises their hand, I'm going to call a liar because there was no way you could do that. It takes practice. It takes effort. It takes building a relationship where you can be in conversation. And I learned that from Brother Lawrence. And Brother Lawrence said that even when he would forget, when he would get caught up in the mundane things of life, God would call him back. And when God did call him back, Brother Lawrence didn't have to fall down and apologize. Guys, I know how you are. Come on, let's just continue where you left off. And they would have that communication. The same way Jesus did with his disciples when they were walking. To me, that was prayer. They're walking and talking to me. You're talking to God, that's prayer. He's talking back. That's the best form of prayer. So those types of books made a big difference in my life. I didn't learn that in seminary. I just found the book and read it. It happened to be in the, the prison library. And it was, it was a life changer for me. I mean, I walk around in the backyard talking to God out loud. And occasionally some of the neighbors will say, are you talking to me? Uh, no, sorry. I was just thinking out loud because I don't want to tell them I'm talking to God because I don't want them to think I'm crazy, right? But I do. <laughs> Talk to them just like that every day walk around the house. My dogs will look at me. They know he's talking to God. He's not talking to us. My wife puts up with it, which is brilliant. (laughs) I don't even realize I'm talking out loud to God, but he brought me through so much. Why am I going to give up on him now? Why, Why wouldn't I keep praying that way? Is our life terrific? Yeah, because we're together. Doesn't mean we have millions of dollars or any of that type of thing. Sometimes it's tough to find a job, you know, for, for an ex con, who's a, a professor, an adjunct professor, rather than being a tenured professor. Sometimes it's tough, but he's never let us down. Went through Hurricane Harvey a few years ago, had a bunch of stuff destroyed. 
God built it right back up. Went through another hurricane a couple of months ago. God was right there with us to do it again. And so it's kind of hard to doubt him after all I've been through over the time being in prison and looking back and seeing what he did. It, it's hard to doubt that he's not going to do the right thing moving forward. So, I mean, why would I doubt that? What would be the reason for that? He's never let me down before. Why would he suddenly do that? At the end of your sentence, you're released. Yeah. And even though your wife, Cynthia, has stood by you all this time, was it like starting a new relationship, coming out and, and having to, to set boundaries again and, and just begin again from a new point? To a degree. Now, understand when I left to go to prison, there was no cell phones, internet. Um, Starbucks was just kind of starting type of stuff in California. Uh, when I get out, she hands me a cell phone. I said, I don't need a cell phone. I don't need to call anybody. She says, no, for 15 years, you had to call me. I want to be able to call you. Okay. All right. So I have a cell phone. I, I thought the internet was like a big library that everything was true on it. You could look stuff up. So I was anxious to, to try that. But my behavior in prison, I'll give you an example. I got home shortly before Thanksgiving and on Thanksgiving, the whole family came over, right? They're staying in the house and, you know, everybody's talking and all this. Well, at 10 o'clock at night, you know, I was tired. So I went to bed and, and Rodney, when I say I went to bed, I just got up and left and went to the bedroom and went to bed. And I got up the next morning and Cynthia says, are you mad? I said, man, I'm going to be mad about it. I'm happy. I'm home. You know, this is great. I'm happy to be with you. You went to bed last night and you didn't say goodnight to anyone. Well, in prison, <laughs> you don't go around. Going, okay, night, night, everybody. I'm going to bed. <laughs> I, 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 it didn't even dawn on me. And then I suddenly realized that, that um, you know, they talk about being institutionalized, the idea that you become used to, to routines and, and institutions, so you carry them with you. That's exactly what had happened. And so I had to learn to do those sort of things. Um, an, another example of that, uh, a few weeks later, uh, Cynthia and our youngest son, are, we're going to the grocery store. Get out of the car, walking up the parking lot. This lady comes running up to Cynthia with a clipboard asking if she'd registered to vote. And Cynthia is very polite, very elegant woman, professional. She's director of, of case management for three hospitals here in Corpus Christi. Just a terrific lady. She goes, yes, I have. Thank you. Oh, okay. And, and so Jesse and I are beginning to tr talk. I mean, he's, he's a teenager. And so we were kind of struggling to establish a rapport, me being there all the time. So we're talking about sports. We're talking about American football. And so we're going back and forth about football. And we're still talking. We're walking up the, the, the street there. And all of a sudden, this lady's in front of me and says, did you register to vote? I just walked around her, continued talking to Jesse, and we kept going. She comes around a second time, gets right in front of me. I said, did you register to vote? And I just walk around her again, still talking to Jesse. Third time, almost to the store, she, she comes around, answer me, did you register to vote? Well, you don't point at people in prison like that. You don't get in their face like that. I mean, it's just not something that's done unless you're looking for a fight. And so I informed her loudly that I was an ex-con, I wasn't going to be able to vote, and that I'd just done 15 years in prison, and that she needed to not stand in front of me. Only I used a lot of swear words to do it, loudly. And I'm a Christian at the time, <laughs> okay? So, but I'm, this is, I'm <laughs> acting, I'm acting out, you know, like, and so she kind of withers and goes away. I see Cynthia pull up the hood on her jacket and go into the store quickly. 
Jesse is my youngest son, just beaming. He's he's so happy. He's, he's smiling. His old man just <laughs> just you know swore at this lady. I you know there's a little bit of the Holy Spirit convicting me, but sometimes the Holy Spirit wouldn't convict me until there was a lesson that had to be learned, and the right lesson, the right person to help me learn that lesson was there. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, when I walk in, Cynthia's got her hood up, got the grocery cart, trying to speed away. Hey, where are you going? Come here, come here. Let me let me push that for you. And and I said, what's wrong? And she said, uh, you just you realize that you just very loudly swore at this lady and told everyone in hearing range that you're an ex-con. I said, yeah. She said, there's nothing wrong with that other than the swearing and being loud. There's nothing wrong with being an ex-con. But she says, the people who heard you, they don't know what you did to go to prison. So they might think they're in the presence of a murderer or a rapist or a child abuser or something like that. You might consider that in the future before that. And that's when the Holy Spirit came and said, yeah, Mike, come on, settle down, trust in me, let me guide you a little more. I had to learn that lesson that way. So there were a couple of times that I can remember right off the top of my head that things did not go well. Yeah, I was a Christian. Yeah, I was saved. Yes, I believed all of those things, but I still had to change coming out of prison. So Cynthia and I, our relationship was great. She would support me through anything, but the children were kind of like, who is this guy? Now, well, Jesse loved the idea of the you know, tough guy, ex-con dad coming out. Daughter, not as much. Oldest son, not as much. So I had to learn to readapt into society. At the same time, be true to God and be true to who he made me, which is sometimes I can be maybe a little loud or sometimes I can be a little you know, demonstrative in, in, in how I talk. And I don't mean swearing, but I mean... I get close at times, but I'm pretty good at stopping. <laughs> I, I hardly ever do it from the pulpit anymore, Roddy. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, but it's one of those things I had to get back into me because I was a guy from the 80s coming out in 2007. You know, I, I, it was rough inside prison. I mean, it's not, I've been through riots. I've been through, I've been the solitary confinement more times than I can count, but I never went to solitary confinement until after I was a Christian. Because I was always under suspicion for something. Because what stuff that I used to do, I wasn't doing anymore. So he must be doing something worse. So th- th- there was a change and, and things had to occur. And I had to grow as a person as God wanted me to be outside of prison. And and that's that's been uh, an ongoing process. Tell me a little of what life is like now. Very different to those prison days. And I'm sure that God is still teaching you lessons. But what does life look like for you today? When I turned 60, which was a year and a half ago, I thought, okay, that's it. I'm done. You know, that's it. You get 60, that's old. (laughs) You're finished. You know, we're going to just, okay, I'm going to retire and then slowly fade away. But it hasn't been that way at all. I wrote the the memoir. Uh, I've written a, a novel that I'm working on now. Um, I finished up a dissertation for my doctorate in, the, uh, in uh, psychology uh, over the last few years. And so today I'm an adjunct professor. I teach online. Occasionally I go into the classroom. Um, I enjoy being in the classroom. I enjoy teaching students and, and challenging them and having fun with them. But I, I, I enjoy the time alone with God. I can see what was so appealing to, to Francis Merton and in, in his uh, writings, a Roman Catholic uh, monk, a, a Trappist monk, about the, the solitude of being with God. And so there are days when I have contact with no one but Cynthia. 
and I can, I'm, I'm content with that. Um, there are other days that I'll have maybe doing interviews or be interviewing people, have classes, and I'm busy going back and forth, and it's fine. But any problems that arise, I always put into the perspective of what I've been through in the past and how God was faithful with that. You know, I've been in prison riots where, you know, things got ugly in a hurry and he still protected me. And so you know, I, I always give the example of this way. Uh, in prison, when they say, hey, that brother's going to stab you in the back, they mean it literally. <laughs> it's not like it's not a, <laughs> a metaphor of, uh, oh, he's going to say something bad about you. So there's this perspective that I've been that I've been given by God that it's OK to be alone because you're not alone because you're with God. It's OK if if people don't always remember your name or they're not struck by this interview or by reading one of your books or that's okay. That's okay. And so my life is one of, of pleasant solitude at times of, of pleasant action at times, but of, of, of trying my best to be led by God and whatever he wants me to do it. And sometimes that's moment to moment because sometimes I can get a little restless, I'll admit. And that's time of, okay, we'll pick up the guitar you know, let's just talk, Mike, while you, while you play your little chords or, you know, let's, let's write some more. Let's edit some more. This is a, is a quiet, more contemplative time. And I've described it to Cynthia as uh, being in solitary confinement with privileges. But I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good life. Our, our children are all grown. Uh, we have five grandsons. It's an enjoyable life because... I see it through how God wants me to see it. And the times that I get restless, I realize I'm just being kind of a knucklehead and just to settle down. I'm going to put some links to your website in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net. But for anyone listening, what's the easiest way for them to get in touch with you? If they want to pick up a, a copy of your book and delve further into your story or listen to the podcast, where should they go? Well, I made it pretty simple. If, if they want to buy the book, it's, it's on Amazon. It's called A Prisoner's Perspective, The Redemption of a Criminal Mastermind. So it's right there on Amazon. If you're interested in finding out more about me or for, for whatever reason that may be, uh, you can go to MikeSavageBooks.com. Uh, that's, that's the website. And I'm also on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And I'm not a master of any of those, but I am capable of returning messages. So they <laughs> can at least do that. But the, uh, that's the best way to get in touch. And I appreciate your, your putting those up there. Thank you, Rodney, very much. Mike, it has been a delight hearing your story, to hear where you've come from and where God has you headed. And I'm sure that the story is not over yet, but thank you so much for your time today on Bleeding Daylight. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.